So this morning, Stephen was exploring more of the concepts around self and no self. Martin spoke a little bit about that last night as well. And I want to, I was I was struck by how Stephen talked about that the self is a process of becoming rather than something that we want to fix or that is fixed. We want to see if we can shift this perception around how we view ourself. And he talked about uh, reconstructing or refashioning this sense of ourself, which is a little different view of how some people might think about it if you've studied this whole notion of not-self or no-self. And I really like this, and I resonate very much with this sense of this um, refashioning, you know, this sense of ourself and what that would actually mean. And so I want to explore that a little bit tonight, this how do we do that, you know, particularly from the point of view of the Buddhist teachings and point to uh, uh, some of the teachings that he, where he directly addresses this refashioning. And I want to particularly point out this, that particular discourse because I think it's uh, one that we're not so aware of in terms of what the Buddha is actually teaching until we study the Buddha's teachings a little bit more. You know, the, we're always asked to first look at our own mind. You know, as we want to uh, understand this whole notion of, of freedom and, and having, coming into an experience in our life of more freedom, we need to look at our own mind. And why is that? This is um, a very famous passage of the Buddha from the Dhammapada. And it goes like this. We are what we think. All that we are arises from our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. So speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So we are pointed directly back to our own, our own mind. We are what we think. And, of course, this is the central kind of uh, idea in, in, in Buddhist practice is to really begin to examine how we shape our reality, how we create our reality due to our ideas and our beliefs, our assumptions, our views about things, and how those ideas get fixed as the way things are. And when we fix these ideas and these beliefs, and and Martine was speaking a little of this last night, that when we fix things, then we uh, are not living in accord of the Dharma. We're not able to see things very clearly. We're caught in that structure. When the Buddha says um, to speak or act with a pure mind, I think what's meant by that is a mind that is unhindered, is unbound, is free of these 
obstacles of these fixations is, 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 is sometimes the metaphor of dust is used, the dust in our eyes where we're not seeing so clearly. I think this is what's meant by a pure mind, you know, not like a pu- you know, mind that is, that, that is filled with purity. When, you know, sometimes we could exaggerate that idea, but just simply unhindered, you know, a mind that is f- free of these, these um, obstacles, as opposed to the impure mind, not an evil mind necessarily, but a mind, but an impure mind, a mind being the mind that is bound or hindered by these obstacles and not able to see very clearly. So we want to. This is what, uh, what we want to begin to understand: is what starts to purify, and sometimes this is called the path of purification. What begins to purify the mind? And we're purifying the mind of, of greed and hatred and confusion, these, these strong forces that run through the mind. So the usual perspective or position of self or, or a sense of ourself or what is called in psychological words of ego, the egoic position, is an idea that we are separate, we are therefore isolated, we're cut off, from everything else, and we can get into this fixed view, which is a dualistic view of self and other, in that separateness. And then in that, that separate self has needs, and it has desires, it has plans, it has expectations, and therefore, because of this separateness, it needs to defend itself and be gratified and enhanced, and all of this keeps us very busy and keeps the mind very busy. And we find that we're in, in this continual activity of doing, doing things to gratify or enhance or defend our, this ego. And we feel that both mentally the, the, and physically, this activity mentally and physically, and it's really what makes up that kind of that sense of that being in that hamster's cage. You know, we're just going round and round and round and round. And this reference point that everything points back to ourself is so common that for most people, most people, they don't even think about it or consider that it could be any other way, that the self is not a separate uh, dualistic uh, uh, self. When I spent, I was this July, I was spending nine days at my niece's in, I also, Martine speaks of her niece, uh, my niece in uh, Ohio, and she has two small um, toddlers, two and four, and um, I was there on a so-called holiday, (laughs) but of course it wasn't anything like a holiday. I mean, just being in that whirlwind with Uh, her and her husband, of course, we had other relatives there and these two little toddlers and being on their timeline, it's just phenomenal. There's, there's, I don't know how any mother of small children can think or reflect about anything besides just getting things done uh, through the day and taking care of what needs to be taken care of. And that's the usual way most people are, is just focusing on what needs to happen. And, and to, to be able to really reflect on some of the things that we're reflecting here is, is a total luxury, isn't it? It's a real privilege to be able to take time and reflect on this sense of a separate self and whether that's the true reality or not. 
This is what um, Wei Wu Wei says. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what we're trying to understand. (laughs) How is that? You know, this all this, everything we do and everything we think is for ourselves. And then this, but how, what is it? What does it actually mean to come into some understanding that this self is not the way we think it is? So this ego or this self, what is it? This is a definition from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, from the Diamond Heart School. He says, ego is a psychic structure that is based on crystallized beliefs about who we are and what the world is. These beliefs formed in our early childhood and give rise to a solid structure or a belief in a particular identity. And I really like that definition, particularly the use of crystallized beliefs. Because, you know, if you, when we actually, through our awareness, are able to experience more directly that sense of our solidity, you know, the solid self that's gripped in ideas and needs and desires, and we're contracted and defended and, you know, all bound up in that, if you think of a crystal, it, it kind of feels that way, you know, with points jutting out and, you know, very hard and rough and... And it's very much like that. It's like these crystallized ideas, you know, that have taken form over a long period of time. And we feel caught in them. And this is what gives us that sense of self, the kind of the sense of the, um, the, the this is what we might call the negative self or the self that, that does not feel true, does not feel authentic, somehow that there must be some way out of this because we can feel very bound up in that. So our practice, this is my, our meditation practice, is really to see if we can come out of this fixation. So we begin to examine the ways that this fixation takes hold. We, we, we look at our thoughts. Martine was talking, used the example last night of how we, care, we can characterize ourselves around a thought, you know, some idea that we have about who we are, and we become that person, whether it's an angry person or an, a sick person or a, uh, um, an ugly person or whatever it is, and that, how that can actually make us feel so small and so limited. Another way of talking about ego is um, talking about habit. You know, just how we we get caught in our habits, and those habits are repetitive. They happen over time, and we feel bound up in them. And we might say that these are karmic inclinations, something that gets repeated because of this, that happens again and again and again or these conceptual frames of mind that are reinforced through repetition. I came across this definition of insanity, and it goes like this. Insanity insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. And if you think about yourself... 
I think that, <laughs> and myself, that might apply. Isn't that what we do? Repeating the same thing over and over and over again, and we expect something different to happen. And then we wonder, why, why is the same thing happening again and again? Because we're caught in those habits. So our meditation, and we've been doing it a little bit here, is really asking us to be mindful of these thought patterns, to be mindful of the, of the way that our mind gets caught, gets fixated in these repetitious ways of thinking. And so we can begin to inquire, begin to explore, investigate, how do I give shape to my reality What am I thinking? How do I perceive the world? How do I generate this sense of myself or this identity, this identity view? What actually, what are the conditions that are are configuring that gives rise to this sense of self? And we really use our mindfulness, we use our meditation to inquire, to explore, both through the mind, we pay attention to the mind, but also the feeling, the feeling of the structure. We can actually feel it in our body. We can feel it, like, you know, sometimes we can feel that way our heart feels contracted, or we can feel defended, you know, and, and like, almost like we have a shield up around our heart here, which is a kind of structure based on some belief that we have about the world and about how we need to be in the world. And we can begin to explore that and see if it's actually true, if it's necessary, if it's, if it's something that we need now, or is it just some kind of conditioned habit or strategy that's formed over time. We want to break up. We want to begin to loosen these fixation, these ideas that we have. In fact, this... Um, when the Buddha uh, was enlightened, uh, one of his enlightenment songs, you know, or roars after his, his awakening was, 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 was this. This is how this is translated from um, the Sam, Samyutta Nikaya. So the Buddha said these words. He says, Seeking but not finding the house builder... I traveled through round a round of countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever again. And this is what he means, the, the repetition of these same habits where we're reborn as the same person moment after moment. He says, oh, painful is birth ever again. House builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridge pole is demolished too. My mind has now attained the unformed nirvana and reached the end of every kind of craving. So it's really this kind of, he's he's using very much the same metaphor of of the structure of the house that we have built or the identity that we have built for ourselves. He says, you shall not build the house again. Whoever that is, you know, that house builder, that ego, the, the, the ridge pole, which is that, that sense of the, the intact ego. The ridge pole is demolished, you know. So you really get that sense. He says, I have attained the unformed nirvana. So something is now free. Something is, is, is loosened, 
unformed, formless, not so, so contracted and structured and constricted. This very much this, this process of, 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 of change and, and, and transiency, of movement, of fluidity, of flow, moment to moment, not something that's fixed and, and rigid. We start to have more of a sense of that. You certainly do in, when you meditate and look at your own mind and start to see things breaking up and, and things changing. So this is what we're examining. We start to have some insight into. We start to have some perspective about what it actually means as this sense of self begins to break down, begins to loosen. Sometimes when we come to meditation, the first idea that we have is that we have to get rid of our thoughts. You know, it's the same kind of idea that somehow we have to cut off some part of ourself. We have to kind of... um, uh, dem- uh, demolish uh, how we might imagine ourselves forming in our own mind. So cut it off. And um, sometimes this idea is enhanced through the practices of concentration, where we actually do quiet the mind. We do sometimes actually see very uh, big gaps between thoughts, the, mind's, the mind can become very spacious when the mind gets deeply concentrated. And concentration basically means that the mind becomes quite unified. The mind and the body are, are, are aligned in the present moment. It's not like the mind is, you know, in uh, uh, Hawaii and the body is at Spirit Rock, you know, or, or the mind is you know, back at work and your body's sitting here. And there's this split, this kind of imaginary split. But in concentration, there's, you, really, you really experience that unified state of mind and body being extremely present in the here and now. And that concentration can really deepen. And as it deepens, we experience more meditative uh, uh, experiences of, uh, of expansion and, and light and, and energy and all these different kind of meditative experiences that you hear that come about through concentration. But really, that's not the goal in our meditation, but it's actually the reason there's so much emphasis on concentration, and certainly the Buddha talks a lot about the concentration in his uh, discourses as well, is really more for sh- to, to sharpen the tool of awareness, so that that can, so awareness can be turned towards insight, so that we can actually see things more clearly, not just to have meditative experiences. I came across this uh, from um, Ajahn Chah, you know, again, the great Thai master uh, who's one of the elders in our tradition. And Ajahn Chah says, If your mind becomes quiet and concentrated, it is an important tool to use. But if you're sitting just to get concentrated so you can feel happy and pleasant, then you're wasting wasting your time. The practice is to sit and let your mind become still and concentrated and then to use that to examine the nature of the mind and body to see more clearly. Otherwise, if you make the mind simply quiet then for that time it's peaceful and there is no defilement. But this is like taking a stone and covering up a smelly garbage pit. When you take the stone away, it's still full of smelly garbage. You must use your concentration not to temporarily bliss out, 
but to accurately examine the nature of the mind and body. This is what really frees you. So again and again, no matter how much emphasis we put on concentration practices and quieting the mind and stilling the mind so that the thoughts aren't impacting so much, we want to turn that towards insight so that we can really examine how this, this structure of self, this, this, the way the ego has con- constricted itself, contracted itself, and then defends itself in the world, creates this duality. This is what we want to break down. So what does the Buddha say? How do we reconstruct or refashion the self instead of this negating, instead of cutting off or, or deleting parts of ourself. Interesting thing, the first thing he says is that we really need to know the correct method. He's very pragmatic, you know. He, said, he says in one of the suttas, in the um, Bhumija Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, he says that one's wish or um, hope for what happens in the practice has little to do with receiving fruits, the fruits of one's practice. What matters is applying the correct method. And he says the correct method is the Eightfold Noble Path. And he uses a couple of similes where he says, you know, if one grinds gravel to get oil, it doesn't matter whether one wishes for oil or or doesn't, one won't get it. If one uses sesame flour, however, one will obtain oil, for this is the proper method. You know? Or he says, if one, um, if one churns water to get butter, one won't. If one churns curd, one will, because this is the proper method. You know, so he just, and he goes on and on and names a whole bunch of different things just to, again, kind of orient us towards being on the right path, not to get distracted. You know, we have to uh, pay attention to what works and what doesn't work. So, so one of the way, one of the places we're pointed to is to, uh, um, the Eightfold Noble Path. Is particularly which which I want to bring out right now is the second factor on the Eightfold Noble Path, which is wise thought, because this is what I'm exploring right now. What is what does this mean, Samasankapa? Um, it's translated as wise thought. Sometimes it's also translated as wise intention or wise aspiration. And they're all actually very similar as you start to explore them. The wise intention follows wise view, which is the first factor on the Eightfold Path, because once we see more clearly, once our wise view comes into place which is essentially understanding the Four Noble Truths and what creates suffering and what creates happiness, then we're, we're inspired to establish a clear vision or a path or to strengthen our intention to create a path for ourselves or freedom for ourselves. And so therefore, the second factor is this wise intention or wise thought. Now, intention and thought are used equally here because it's the thought and intention which actually sets something in motion. When we think about something and we, it gives us some sense of direction, how we want to di- direct our actions. And intention 
arises in every moment, amazingly. You know, in every moment there's some intention. Like right now I have the intention to continue giving this discourse because I think it might be of some value for you. So this intention is setting this in motion right now. And hopefully you have the intention to want to hear it so that you're sitting here rather than walking out the door. So your intention is operating in this moment. Sometimes that clear that intention arises through a, a conscious thought. We'll have a, a thought that we're, we recognize, we're aware of the, 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 the words in the mind or the language in the mind, like, I really want to go to sleep. <laughs> I'm really, in, really tired. So we might be aware of a particular thought, which will direct our action. Sometimes we'll just get a picture or an image in the mind, which then, oh, yeah, I want that. You know, picture of the color I want to paint my bathroom. Oh, yeah. So I go out and I get the paint. Or um, intention might just be a kind of bodily impulse where we might just, it may not be a conscious thought, but we feel the body already acting and moving. And you can feel that sometimes when you're, when before you actually, when you're sitting sometimes and you have the impulse to move because you have a pain in your knee or something, you may not be aware of the whole sequence that's happening, but the impulse already arises because something's taking place, something's setting in motion to move your body so that you don't have to feel that pain. So it's really helpful to see if we can actually be aware of these impulses and these thoughts that are arising because that's what we're setting in motion. You know, sometimes I I think of it as an arrow, you know, like a bow and an arrow. The intention is that bow that, you know, when I shoot it, it's, it's aiming for something. And hopefully it's conscious. You know, hopefully I know what I'm aiming for. But a lot of times we don't know. We're just in that momentum of habit, right? And then we find ourselves somewhere. And so what we're trying to do is to see if we can bring more consciousness to our impulses, to our intentions, to our thoughts, so that we can then perhaps give some, uh, uh, we can refashion or we can restructure in some way our reality. We're not just caught, we're not just bound by habit, by ego, by the karma that has been set in motion. So as we know that, you know, intention isn't, intention is arising in every moment, but it's not always infused with wisdom. It sometimes can be infused with ignorance, with craving, you know, or tanha, with our self-desires. And when our intentions are, are bound up with this ignorance, it really obscures our ability to discern what's helpful for us or for somebody else or beneficial in some ways. It's just, it's, it's in, when we're not able to discern very well, when we're really caught in our craving, in our grasping, in our attachments, then we may experience our, our, our actions in a much more random fashion. You know, we're here and we're there and we're pulled here. You know, just these impulses are just playing out. We, don't, we may not have much of a sense of a flow because we're being yanked around by all these, these uh, conditioned impulses. We call this, um, 
it's more likely to to have bad karma, you know, because we're not uh, because we're there's not much wisdom operating. But when the, when our intentions are infused with mindfulness and wisdom, then there's more possibility to be able to, to discern what's arising in any given moment. We can discern perhaps what to follow and what not to follow. Again, we have a little bit more space. We have a little bit more pause. Sometimes we call mindfulness the pause, or the pause that refreshes. You know, the, just taking a moment so we can see a little bit more of what's going on. And then when we do that, we might say it's more likely to have good karma <laughs> because we're actually having you know, more control in some way of what we're setting in motion, so therefore we can direct our intentions more towards what brings happiness, what brings uh, love, or what brings um, uh, that which is beneficial in our lives, rather than just this sort of more random sense of finding ourselves in dukkha and conflict and pain and not knowing how we get there. So it's really you know, a very clear um, uh, method f- for us to begin to come out of our suffering. The Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. This is a very important quote for me. It's given me a lot of reflection. Whatever one frequently thinks and or ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So we want to be we want to have some awareness about what we think and ponder upon. This is from, um, this is a modern version of that same idea. And this, is, this, this one went around a lot after 9-11. It was a one, one of the things on the internet. Um, it goes like this. A Native American grandfather was talking to his grandson about how he felt about a struggle he was having. He said, I feel as if I have two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is the vengeful, angry, violent one. The other wolf is the loving, compassionate one. And the grandson asked him, well, grandfather, which wolf will win the fight in your heart? And the grandfather answered, the one I feed. And so it's the same. With, with, that's the nature of the way things work. Whatever we feed is going to grow. It's, it's the same when we plant seeds in the ground and we fertilize and we nourish them. They're going, they're, it's more likely they're going to grow rather than the, the seeds that are planted that we ignore. And so it's the same with our own mind, our own thoughts, our own intentions. We want to know what it is that we're fertilizing. You know, somebody also called this once the, the, the Dharma rain. We want the Dharma to rain on certain seeds that we're planting so that they, they grow, they, they're nourished, and they, they bear fruit at some point, but fruit for, for happiness, for freedom, for, for love, for wisdom. 
So intentions are like planting seeds all the time. We're, and every moment there's an intention. Here on this retreat, I mean, all the intentions that you've, that you, the seeds that you've planted already, you know, even this, the seed of coming to the retreat, you know, the, all, the whole intention that had to be in place to even get yourselves here. You know, strong intention, we call that uh, right intention, you know, uh, wholesome intention because of the fruit that it will bear uh, in your life for being, for spending your time in a situation like this and hearing the Dharma and the teachings of the Dharma. So many very wonderful things will grow from this. So this is, we want to put our time and our, our efforts and our energy into something like this. And so, and so more and more we begin to discern our, our thoughts in this way. The intention I really see as inclining the mind, turning the mind. I think these are mind-turning practices. You know, turning the mind towards the good. Turning the mind towards that which is skillful and wholesome in our lives. And, and this has great power. And the reason it has such great power is because this intention, this, this action is exclusively for the welfare and the happiness for ourselves and other beings. It's all it's for is so that we can be more free, we can be liberated, we can live more closely to our heart, we can, we can live with love and wisdom and compassion and consciousness. This, this, is, this is very powerful when we start to turn our mind in this way. And so the Buddha is very specific in telling us how to turn the mind, that we pay attention to our thoughts, our thoughts when our thoughts are either thoughts of, um, of, of, of attachment to sense desire or, or thoughts of ill will or thoughts of cruelty, you know, as opposed to uh, the opposite, which are thoughts of letting go or thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of loving kindness, which is non-ill will, the opposite of ill will, or the thoughts of non-cruelty, which is uh, compassion, um, uh, the, the care for others, other, others' pain. So, so it's the turning, turning the mind away from the unskillful or so-called negative aspects to the, to the skillful, the, the positive way of being. And in this way, we begin to, to change ourselves. We reshape ourselves. We become, we become one that lives closer to our nature or closer to the Dharma. We become the Dharma. We become uh, aligned with the law of the Dharma. And it's not that we are even separate, like the Dharma's there and then we're here and we're aligned with the Dharma. It's, it's we are that. I am that. You are that. The Dharma is not different from me. That essential nature that runs through all things is running through me. It's running through you. There's, there is no separation between 
me and it or, or dharma and, and self. It is all the same. And so as we start to feel into this and sense into this more, we, we feel that, that, that aliveness, that dynamism of the dharma being here right now. Or the, we even say Buddha nature, the, the expression, the aliveness of Buddha nature here now. Not out there, but, but here within our own experience as we begin to loosen and break down those fixations of, of how we think of who we are. Sokni Rinpoche, one of my uh, uh, teachers in the Tibetan tradition, talks about this, this, when this starts to break up, he says, the qualities of the heart are the afterglow. I love that. The qualities of the heart are the afterglow of this awareness, of this wisdom. And these qualities of the heart start to express themselves because there's the absence of the greed, absence of the hatred, absence of the confusion. And it's not that there's then nothing. You know, sometimes, I know I thought that for a long time, that, well, absence means, you know, when there's no greed, hatred, and delusion, then there's nothing, right? That's like emptiness, the voidness, you know. But it's not. I mean, when we really feel into our experience in the absence of greed and hatred and confusion, it's something. (laughs) There's something. (laughs) And that something can feel all different kinds of ways. We may feel that as a, a radiance or a luminosity, or we may feel a kind of steadiness or a firmness, a kind of strength or a power. You know, sometimes we say, like a mountain, you know, we sit like a mountain. And we can feel that. And it's on the inside, like the substance, the texture is in the inside of our experience. Or we might feel um, the, around the heart, you know, in this absence of the of the hatred, where, where we may feel an openness or an expansion or, or a softness, where that way that the heart felt so kind of constricted and condensed kind of opens up. And it's not just abstract. It's not metaphoric. We actually feel it. And I know you've had these kinds of experiences. And as we start to feel the body more directly and come into be more embodied in our experience, we can feel the shifting and changing experiences and, and textures, um, energies that start to, to, to express themselves through the body. We might feel a kind of childlike curiosity, you know, as the, as the world starts to open up again. We see things that we haven't seen before. We kind of feel a delight and a, an innocence and a, a childlike nature where, oh, wow, you know, how, how neat everything is and how exciting things become. That, that may happen. It's not like that's how we become and that becomes another state. It's more that sometimes our sense of, of uh, that loosening gets expressed that way. You know, it's, there's lots of different ways that this kind of freedom expresses itself. We may feel um, the compassion, which is in a, in a, a feeling that arises in the face of pain, as we've been talking about, when we're in with somebody who's going through a difficult situation. And we can, we can feel the movement of our being, that kind of the pull 
in our, in our being pull towards wanting to help, wanting to do something, wanting to serve, wanting to make a difference. And we can feel that too sometimes around the heart or in our gut or in our belly, in our, in our being, where, where it becomes a, an actual experience of that movement of, of love. Or it may even manifest as a way of just, you know, kind of a radical honesty where, or truthfulness where we just need to speak the truth. We can't exaggerate or we can't kind of fudge things or be kind of abstract, but we want to be more in contact with what's true. And so there's more of a, f- a sense of wanting to take some time and, and kind of feel or kind of sense into or kind of pay attention a little bit more accurately to what's actually occurring and then want to speak that or be able to, to tell another person or relate with another person in a, in a kind of truthfulness or an authenticity which feels aligned with that kind of that quality of realness or what's real as opposed to what's not real. And so, so there's many different ways that that kind of that sense of freedom, which I'm using now just as, a, as opposite of being constricted or bound, so when we feel loosened up and more free, then that, 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 that freedom expresses itself in many different ways. Again, it's not a state that we arrive at. But, but, there, but as, as people have been saying in the interviews too, I feel I have a lot more options you know, we just, we feel like, wow, I'm, I don't have to just go in that direction, get caught in that habit, but wow, I can actually do it this way too. You know, for example, when I don't have to defend myself so much, that wow, maybe I can actually be with this person in a different way, or, or maybe I can actually choose not to be with this person, or there's so, we just feel like there's so many more possibility for the way we can be. So, so things aren't static. You don't arrive at a state. But it's more of this, this uh, uh, beautiful expression. And as Stephen was talking to this morning, it's in some ways a unique expression. It's not like everybody expresses themselves in the same way as they become free. But because of certain conditions and certain patterns and influences that happen to, to me or to you through your life, then your freedom expresses itself in a unique way dependent on those conditions. So therefore, you know, everybody's expression is invaluable, is so important, what each of us bring to the world, to, uh, to our life, because we are unique, because we are individuals. And that doesn't change as we become uh, more of who we are in a more true and authentic way. So we practice. We practice awareness, present moment, staying as present as we can so we can see ourselves. We can know ourselves, our thoughts and our feelings and our intentions, our impulses, all that's arising moment to moment, bringing this more into consciousness and being able to discriminate Is this thought, if I follow this thought, is this useful? Is this helpful? Is this going to lead me towards liberation, is to more freedom, to more happiness, to more love? Or if I follow this thought, is it going to bring me to more suffering, to more pain, to more conflict, to more anger? We begin to have this 
ability to make conscious choice in our life. And just the last thing to say, you know, as we do this, you know, we're really being confrontational with ourselves. It's not easy to break up the old patterns, the old way of being. And we may start to feel that uneasiness, like, wow, well, you know, I've wrapped myself around these ideas for my whole life. Well, if I stop doing this, who am I? You know, who am I going to be? What's going to happen? And that can be a little frightening. It can be a little scary at times. So that's totally natural. It's totally part of the process of the path because we are really looking deeply at what's true. We are making it important to live with truth. And when we do that, we have to really look at what's not true, what's false, what has been the ways I've lived that have been deceptive, that have been dishonest. So all of that, too, is part of this. But hopefully we've learned, we learn as we go along enough ways to hold ourselves, to care for ourselves as we begin to break up into more authenticity and truthfulness. So, so I think I'll end with that. I didn't actually expect, I didn't want to talk so long, but I got carried away. (laughs) (laughs) So we have time for some comments or questions, anything that this stirs in you. Yes, Jeff. I have a comment and then a question. Yeah. I was falling. And I remember as a child having dreams of falling and hating that feeling of falling. Well, I couldn't go back. So, you know, I had to sort of say, fall. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, in a way, I'm still falling. And every once in a while, you know, the fear comes back. But that's just a comment. The question I have. Okay, then the challenge comes. 
Sí. Yeah. So is that your question? Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, you know, the way I look at it is that we do have choice, you know, and we are very uh, grateful that we have choice, you know, that you're not sitting there with your legs being numb for the rest of your life, you know, that, that the reality is that you, you have the choice. And so really we're kind of setting up a, a kind of a... A laboratory for ourselves here, right? You know, we're just saying, let's set up the conditions so that we really can look at things in a way we we don't often have a chance to look at them. In case, you know, I have numb legs for the rest of my life, but right now I don't. So let me see what I can understand from this or what can be revealed from this. And then there's a point where, okay, that's enough. I'll do something else. Because the thing is that as soon as you turn your attention to something else, it's another thing. To investigate, it's not like you're, you know, you're you're going to lose the thing <laughs> that's going to bring the insight. The possibility of insight is there in every moment, whatever the condition is, the phenomena is that you're looking at. So, so it doesn't matter what you're looking at, right? Every moment is an opportunity for insight. So, you know, some the way I look at it is, I don't have to. I really don't have to bang my head against the wall too much <laughs> to get insight. You know, sometimes I might want to, I think, oh, this is interesting, you know, I'm, you know, so I'm gaining some insight here, but I, you don't really have to. You know, it's a little, it's kind of a razor's edge. It's kind of a balance yeah. Building capacity. Yeah. Building tolerance for things I don't want. Right. So I didn't like that, I didn't want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's the that's there's some insight in there. 
You know, so you want to reflect on, do you do this? Is this a pattern that you do, that you get caught in? But so you, you, you do, you know, as long as there's interest, there's curiosity, there's enough uh, uh, aware, uh, integrity in your awareness to pay attention and you can stay with it, there's a lot that can be learned there. You know, but, but it's not, you know, any condition is a condition for that, for insight. But of course we want to push the edges of our capacity, and that's what the retreat is. The re- whole retreat form is like that. We can, we can adjust the retreat form. We can make it much more difficult for ourselves, or we can open it up and make it more loose. It really depends what we need at any given time. And that's a very individual matter. So, so I don't think you need to judge yourself <laughs> and call yourself names when you decide that you want to move on. You know, you just you say, okay, it's enough. But it's always, a, you know, it's always a, a little bit of an edge, and we want to play that edge. You know? we, we want to hold it lightly. Hold it lightly. Don't get too serious about it. Yes. Anything else? Are you weary? <laughs> okay, I, I appreciate the, the last question, comment, and talking about that, because I, I don't know if I've had many occasions to do that. And so yeah. in a similar vein, I'm curious about sometimes when I'm sitting, and perhaps I've had a mistaken notion that I'm supposed to be banishing all thoughts. I mean, I guess I've had that ideal for better or worse it's what I've been doing in my practice anything time something comes up I you know just try to let it go then sometimes I have what I'll refer to as insights or realizations that seem like they're valuable for my life and that I want to work with that and integrate it a little bit and say oh this is interesting I see this but so far I've been just kind of pushing all that away say oh that's just a thought don't hang on to it and I wonder if I've been maybe cutting myself yeah. off from valuable material by thinking I'm not supposed to be having any thoughts. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's pos- possible. I mean, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens as you start to open up. You open up your awareness to include more of the changing phenomena. Just to, to let yourself come into contact Really let yourself, so, you're, so, so as you open up and feel the momentary changing nature of things, see what happens. That'll be very interesting for you. I think that, I think a lot more will be revealed. You know, there, sometimes we can sit in a much more kind of, you know, more, much more kind of, I don't want to use the word rigid because that sounds negative, but, you know, more of a form where, you know, we're really concentrated, we're like the breath or a mantra or something, and we're in more of an exclusive kind of practice. We are pushing things out, but that's really to deepen the concentration so that then the, we can turn it. But um, I think generally in day-to-day, sort of day-to-day practice and uh, uh, just the kind of moving through the day, both the sitting practice and the informal times, just practicing more of that open quality of awareness and really let yourself be touched. Let yourself be in contact with life and see what happens. See what happens to your, to your heart, to your being as you move more or more in the, an engaged way. Hmm? Yeah? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, just apropos 
that I had a really magical moment um, a couple days ago on the retreat. I was uh, doing some walking down by the Gratitude Hut, and um, I said to myself, well, I'll just go into the Gratitude Hut and pay homage to the masters that have gone before. Can everybody hear? I don't think everybody can hear. Um, Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, you could start I, again. <laughs> Sorry. I, I kind of had a magical moment a couple days ago when I was on walking meditation, and I was walking down by the Gratitude Hut, and I wanted to go in and, and just pay homage to all the, the great teachers. And just as I was walking towards the hut, the wind blew the doors open. <laughs> and it was as if they were saying, come in, come in, you know? And my heart just went, wow. And I, I know it's coincidence, but, mm-hmm. um, but I, I suddenly had this insight that that's all they wanted to do is to bring happiness to everyone in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I just felt like, even though I felt their spirits, even though, mm-hmm. you know, every time I go in there, I, I just feel their spirits. So mm-hmm. um, it was just really great. Beautiful. It helped everything kind of come together, even though, you know, you sort of go, that's just a coincidence. The wind just blew it open. It just seemed like they were just... <laughs> so that's just the mind, too. The mind just <laughs> says, oh, it's just a coincidence. You know, we can just say it's all, you know, who knows? <laughs> Who knows? You just when you walk, you know where the gratitude hut is. Does everybody know where the gratitude hut is? You know, it's um, as you walk out of the gates below on the, dry, uh, the the retreat gates. There's a few cars there, and there's a driveway that goes down to the community hall and the bookstore. There's a little hut right at that corner there, right at that driveway, and it's our gratitude hut. And if you go inside; it has uh, pictures of all our elders. And little stories and things. It's a really, really beautiful, and and and, and it and it has a atmosphere, you know. And so uh, for you, that's what happened. The doors <laughs> blew open, and you were welcomed in. And it, you know, and there's something happened for you. You know, your heart was uplifted in that moment. That's all that matters, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And your heart opened in gratitude and appreciation and mystery. Beautiful moment. Ah. 